You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We're both longtime MMA journalists. And for the last 10 years, we've been meeting here every week to break down all the action in the wild, weird, and occasionally wonderful world of mixed martial arts. Ben, we had UFC 281 over the weekend. An action-packed pay-per-view, I would say. You had 11 stoppages and 15 fights, including every fight on the main pay-per-view card ended in a stoppage. You had two title changes. You had the end of a former... Uh, championship career, a great career for Frankie Edgar. And then, of course, you had Dustin Poirier and Michael Chandler go out there and have themselves the slobber knocker that we all anticipated. Uh, Living many lives over the course of a couple rounds did Dustin Poirier and Michael Chandler. Not sure if it's going to be the fight of the year, but it probably deserves to be on the ballot somewhere because that was a, uh, I guess it was exactly what you would expect from both of those guys. How was your, uh, what was your impression overall, I guess, of UFC 281, which from the outside looking in, uh, just on paper looked like it was going to be one of the best cards of the year and then kind of seemed like it delivered. Yeah, this, honestly, this one was a party. This one was a party all the way through. It's been a while since I've sat through one of those UFC cards where by the time it ends, you're on the couch going, what? Um, am I just supposed to go to bed after that? No way. There's no way I can just call it a night. I, like, I feel like I, I need to drink six beers and discuss it all to decompress <laughs> from the experience because it just felt like so many emotional ups and downs and all kinds of crazy shit happening. And I, I'm going to tell you right now, Jed, I was both hooting and hollering at various points while watching this event. It's kind of crazy, it didn't, especially... It's nice when something delivers on all the stuff you thought it was going to deliver on. And I mean that kind of in both good and bad ways. Yeah. And that, you know, you give us a Michael Chandler and a cool Dusty P fight, we're expecting a real banger, and we got one. You give us Frankie Edgar versus some young buck on his farewell fight, we're expecting to get kind of sad, and we got kind of sad. Yeah. All the way around, it just kind of, the, the full spectrum of the combat sports experience, I would say. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Perhaps no surprise that we got a tremendous amount of listener mail this week, as we do usually when they have these big high-profile UFC pay-per-view events. So we figured uh, we would go all questions considered this week instead of doing our three uh, traditional rounds. We're going to just do listener mail for the full hour. Uh, get through as many of those as we can. We're going to hit up all of the relevant topics from UFC 281. And aside from reminding you that if you want to support the show, you can check us out over at patreon.com slash co-main event, where we have a tier of patronage for every budget, and that you should go ahead and check that out. And also, if you want to support the show, you should go over to comainevent.com and click the link at the top of the screen that says shop. You can go over there and check out the new co-main event podcast merchandise site where you can pick up all of your co-main event podcast gear. Uh, aside from those two reminders, a little housekeeping, we're going to get into it because we got a lot of stuff to try to plow through here relevant to UFC 281. We'll start here with our guy Jizzy B 
And uh, Ben, I know you're going to like this one. This is a, a fitting listener mail email to start things off with from Jizzy B, who writes, So it was my birthday weekend. So I decided to take some shrooms and watch UFC 281 with my bitch-ass casual mom. <laughs> oh, no. Come on. Already I have questions. <laughs> and she made a great point. Isn't this some bizarre world, Volk Holloway shit, where we are just going to keep doing this matchup until the other guy wins? Granted, those previous wins were under less eyeballs at some point. Don't we have to admit that Pereira just has his number? Because if Izzy wins, do we do we go do the fifth one? Now, there's some syntax in there that leads me to believe maybe Jizzy B wrote this while he was still under the influence of various substances. But... uh. His so do you think his mom was also on mushrooms? Do you think his mom knew he was on mushrooms? There's a lot of questions. There's a lot of questions that I have here. Also, does she know that Jizzy B is out here calling her a bitch ass casual? Yeah, she would be probably be pissed if she found out about that. Since as far as I know, Jizzy B's mom is as hardcore as it gets. Yeah, man, she was on the the UG talking about Fedor being overrated <laughs> in like 2003. Man, what are you talking about? <laughs> Of course, we're referring to Alex Pereira's defeat of Israel Adesanya, the main event of UFC 281. The middleweight title changes hands, and as we all knew, the story of this fight coming in was that Pereira had already defeated Israel Adesanya a couple of times back in their kickboxing days. Of course, this one was a mixed martial arts fight inside the giant octagon, and it seemed like Israel Adesanya fared at least uh, better than some of those previous occasions. He, he was... Uh, he was crafting an Israel Adesanya kind of fight in this yeah. thing until the fifth round when he got caught with some hard shots and uh, we caught a TKO stoppage here. Like I suppose that there are a lot of ins and outs and, and facets of this fight that we can discuss. Aside from saying that if you listened to Friday's Power Hour, one of the two guys on this show told you that's exactly how this fight might probably go. And I think that guy was me. I think that guy was me. I mean, there's another guy on Friday's Power Hour who told you he was taken under 4.5 rounds in this thing, and he just barely skated by with that one. So, you know, feel feel pretty decent about that one. Also, uh, not terribly surprised to see Alex Pereira pull off a late TKO in this one. That seemed like a, a very viable possibility from the very beginning. I gotta say... I understand why we might be talking immediate rematch in this because Izzy has been holding it down as middleweight champ for a while. Usually the way it works is if you are a, a popular champion who has been champion for a while, one of the things that we think you earn is a chance at that get back if somebody comes along and takes your belt just so they have to prove that they are really are the new champion and they didn't just catch you on a bad night. So the in, interior logic of this sport would seem to suggest that that might be the next move. But Jizzy B's mom does make a pretty decent point here that if you look at the full scope of Adesanya versus Pereira across combat sports, what do you do? Like, if if Israel Adesanya comes back and wins one, he's the middleweight champ again, but then he is one in three against Alex per uh, in, in fights against Alex Pereira. And so then what? Then... Do you, do you 
turn right around and do a third one, because that's usually a thing that we don't like to do, is do that many immediate rematches, unless it's men's flyweight, and then we just do the same fight over and over again, because everybody loves it. Yeah. So that is a tricky situation. And yet it's also kind of tricky, because in that first round, if there's 10 more seconds after Izzy Adesanya clips him, has Alex Pereira on uh, Queer Street? That was the end of the first round, right? Yeah. Or, or was it yeah. the second? I believe. Yeah, first. Yeah, round. first. If there's ten more seconds, maybe he ends that fight there. You know, and so I I could see how it would be tough to then turn around to a champion who's been there and and really has been putting it on the line a whole lot for you, as Adesanya himself pointed out after the fight. He defended the belt three times in the span of ten months, three times in 2020, beginning in February 2020 to to November. And then be like, hey, thanks for your service. Uh, go fight, you know, somebody. Go fight the number three or four middleweight in the world that maybe we'll talk. That'd be tough. That'd be tough to tell the guy no after that. He shows up in his fur coat, says, give me my title shot again. Hard to tell him no. Yeah, and in fact, I think it would be kind of unorthodox to not do an immediate rematch here, just considering how things went. As you mentioned, Israel Adesanya's Uh, tenure as champion i believe he was the longest reigning male champion in the ufc as we discovered last week also over on our uh, patreon content and he was winning this fight i think by most estimations i think he was up you know 3-1 in the in uh on the scorecards if if uh most people's judgment could be taken uh but that's the thing this is kind of an unorthodox matchup right it's an unorthodox matchup all the way around to uh give Alex Pereira a title shot this quickly in his UFC career. So it is a bit of a quandary. I guess my question is how much do we count those kickboxing matches? Like, obviously they're in our brains. We know that they happened, but it's a different sport. And in this one, Adesanya seemed like he was on his way to winning. And then he got, he got uh, TKO'd. And we could talk about the stoppage a little bit as well, I guess. But like, I don't know how much stock to put in those or how much we're meant to consider those previous kickboxing fights because uh the ufc most frequently doesn't like to consider anything that happens outside the ufc so i don't know i don't know what to how to think of this to be honest they don't like to consider stuff outside the ufc but here it formed the narrative basis yeah. for what we were doing promotionally right yeah. like it's the reason alex Pereira probably got a title shot being still so new to mma and new to the ufc is because of his history with the champion. So uh, I, I think we got to just allow ourselves to admit that we're all thinking about that. Yeah. I'm going to put these next two together because we kind of touched on one of these topics already and the other one maybe uh, plays into what we can discuss next. Uh, this one from Dean Draper who write, all right, lads, not to take fuck all away from Pereira, but don't you think that if Izzy wasn't champ, he would have had to wait longer for his title fight? Chat amongst yourselves for a bit, please. Yes, I think that that's obviously true because of all the things ben just said that this was part of the narrative of this fight it was basically the story of this fight that uh alex Pereira f- essentially followed israel adesanya from kickboxing to mixed martial arts where he was the champion having defeated him twice before g- you know did in fact get this title shot pretty early in his ufc run and ends up winning it in the last round with kind of like a come from behind knockout that's the that's the story of the fight. In fact, I can't remember who it was, but somebody on Twitter called Alex Pereira a generational hater following <laughs> Israel Adesanya between sports just to come beat him again. So uh, to Dean Draper's point, 
yeah, man, he did get this title fight because of their history. And that's kind of what complicates things moving forward. However, this one from Craig, who writes, with Izzy losing and seeing the holes in the game of Pereira in the wrestling side of MMA, the door is open for Bobby Knuckles to come walking in. Any chance he gets the next title fight? Yeah, I I also had this thought. I mean, right now, Bobby Knuckles just got something on the books with Paulo Costa, right? That we're going to go down there in Perth in Australia, give one for the home crowd, all the, the Robert Whitaker faithful down there in Australia, going to get to see him fight Paulo Costa. And that one looks like a banger, yeah. you know? And you got to think that especially if it's Robert Whitaker who comes out of that one, well, he, honestly, either one of them who comes out of that one is probably going to have a, a strong claim to have a next and they are probably going to be hoping that we don't turn around and do an immediate rematch. And at least what we don't take, you know, the next six months to try to set up an immediate rematch. Because if I'm Robert Whitaker and I saw the way that fight went down, we go, okay, here's another big kickboxer, but a guy who definitely seems to have still some holes on that side. Holes that Israel Asanya did not really have, at least at middleweight. He was good at fending off takedowns and being a hard guy to hold down. And I would look at this one if I'm Robert Whitaker and be like, okay, that's a guy who can be taken down. That's a viable path for me to get another title shot. Because if, as long as Israel Adesanya is champion, going to be hard to convince people to give you a third crack at the guy, even yeah. though the second one was really, really close. Yeah. So you do like to see some fresh blood at the top if you're Robert Whitaker. And then you also like to see some fresh blood at the top who maybe, uh, can't fend off a single leg? That that sounds like pretty good news, doesn't it? Yeah, if uh, if Israel Adesanya is out there taking you down a couple times and riding you, yeah, looking looking capable on the ground from the top. If you're a person like Robert Whitaker, or even God dare I say, Mad Marv Vittori, it was basically his game. You yeah, gotta kind of be looking at this, being like, okay, this dude is big and scary, but like, aren't we all? And there are some holes in the game. Well, and also there was a moment there in one of those grappling exchanges where instead of turning towards the fence to both use the fence to help him stand up, but also use the fence to try to scrape Izzy off his back a little bit, Pereira went the other way and ended up getting stuck out in a little more open space. And it's basically like the exact wrong thing that you don't want to be doing there. And that's the the kind of thing where I think a lot of those guys with a lot of grappling experience would look at it and go, oh, okay. Not only are we dealing with a guy who has some vulnerabilities there, but a guy who just doesn't have a ton of experience or feel for that aspect of the game yet. And I could exploit that, even though those guys are also probably looking at the way that fight went and being like, I do not want to stand and trade with the man very long. Yeah, that seems like a bad idea. All right, I want to get into this one in a second from our guy Ethan Andrews, but... Let's just touch on the stoppage a little bit here. Uh, referee Mark Goddard, excellent mixed martial arts referee, steps in, calls this thing off in the fifth round. Adesanya had been stunned by a couple of punches uh, by Pereira. He was still on his feet. It looked like he was dazed, but from when I was watching, it also kind of looked like he was doing the weird Israel Adesanya slipping punches thing. Like he was, It's like he was kind of doing... Like an awkward Adesanya mannerism, but like still 
kind of bobbing and weaving to try to miss punches. And indeed, and again, not really banging on the ref because it's hard to see this when everybody's going full speed. But like when they showed the slow motion replay after it was over, a lot of those punches were missing. He was indeed slipping a lot of those punches. What was your take on the stoppage here? Look, to me, it just seemed a wee bit fast. Yeah, I mean... It's hard for me to criticize that stoppage because you're right that some of those punches were were missing, but some of them were not. Yeah. And he was getting tagged. And when you're standing up there with your back up to the fence and he's got his head down kind of doing the Israel Asanya thing where he's trying to duck some of those punches and slip them. But he's also... I can see how from Mark Goddard's perspective, he's looking at him and being like, that is not a man who is really looking at the punches coming his way and is really responding very much. He's he's keeping his head moving, but almost at random and doesn't seem like he is super aware of what's going on. And, you know, if he'd taken three or four more clean ones and got absolutely starched, we might be sitting here talking about how, uh, what are you trying to do? Get the guy killed in there. Yeah. It was, I, I don't really have a problem with that stoppage because it was part of an ongoing sequence where he was just not, answering back and was just kind of standing there getting teed off on and just because they didn't it wasn't a hundred percent connect rate i don't think means that uh, it was too quick uh here's one from ethan andrews he writes as mma journalists if you were at a post fight press conference and the defeated champion hinted by way of the late chadwick bozeman that everything might make more sense at some future date when we learn that he's been terminally ill the whole time would you have any follow-up questions? Now, I have not watched the entirety of the UFC 281 post-fight press conference, but I did watch the part, and I think this is what Ethan Andrews is referring to, unless there was more of this stuff that I missed, is where Israel Adesanya, resplendent, by the way, yeah. uh, in his fur coat, was <laughs> talking about how he had put some of his quote-unquote health concerns on the back burner, and he did say something a little bit cryptic, where he was like, I just haven't told you guys, even though it's it's you know something people make fun of me about. Which leads he you to think... He seemed to be Tittygate. We yeah, seem to be talking about Tittygate. He's talking about Tittygate, I think, is, is what he was alluding to. He didn't, like, say that he was on death's door or he was dying or anything like that. He just said, I've had some health stuff that I've put on the back burner and maybe now I want to go take care of that. So I don't, I don't know that I'm concerned for the, the future of Israel Adesanya, but he did indicate that something is going on. Yeah... I, I do think that was a weird comparison for him to make. I guess you could say he's just in the moment reaching for the first example he could think of, of somebody who had been dealing with an illness privately and nobody knew anything about it uh, outside of his inner circle. Because otherwise, if you're making that comparison, you're like, okay, wait, but you're a pro fighter. So if you do have major health concerns that you're not talking about, uh, somebody probably should know. And if they're that serious, then somebody maybe should be doing something about it and not putting you in here in a cage to fight another human being. So, like, it is a different kind of dance to that. So, yeah, maybe a little bit of a what are you talking about here kind of thing could be warranted. Uh, especially because he seemed, he did definitely say at one point, he's like, stuff people have made fun of me for. He's mentioned my chest. So, we're definitely talking about the titty gate thing. But also, like, what is, like, are you saying you know what that is, what that, what's, what was causing that, and that is a a health thing that you are not telling people about? Because, I don't know, I mean, I understand how if you're in that situation, you don't want to be like, hey, look, guys, I've been dealing with this health situation, because then it sounds like you're making excuses. Yeah. And even if you say, 
I don't want to make excuses. And, but then if you proceed to say that afterwards, that's all anybody will hear is that you're offering an excuse for why you lost. And I understand him not wanting to do that. But I guess it's the kind of thing where it's like either talk about it or don't. I don't know what we do with the sort of cryptic, maybe I'm sort of like Chadwick Boseman, Joe Boseman kind of thing. I don't know. Remember, this episode of the CME is brought to you in part by NordVPN. We've been telling you about NordVPN for a long time now. Ben and I both have it on all of our devices. I love it because it's fast. It's easy to use. It gives me peace of mind of knowing all my personal information is safe online, whether I am at home using the Internet, whether I'm traveling or whether I'm just running around town. And my phone is bouncing from public Wi-Fi to public Wi-Fi. Uh, ben, what do you like best about NordVPN? Well, you know that I like, Chad, how it kicks on wherever I am, whenever I connect to a new Wi-Fi network. doesn't matter if I'm out and about, perhaps at the, the local tap room, uh, perhaps at the, the haberdasher, at, at the cobbler, uh, uh-huh. even anywhere I might be. Where the public Wi-Fi network is available, NordVPN going to jump right in there and protect my stuff. I appreciate that. Man, I wouldn't want you to get hacked at the haberdasher like no. last time. No, you know, I learned my lesson from that. Hacked at the haberdasher is, is now just the name of my ska band. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let me tell you a little bit about the Nord Security Bundle. Just like the CME Patreon, it has a couple of different handy tiers of patronage. NordVPN has three easy options for how to use it. You can get the standard plan for your basic VPN needs. You can get the plus plan if you need a little something extra. And if you want to go all the way, go whole hog, take it all the way to the house, you can get the complete plan, which will take care of your every need. Enjoy the leading VPN service and malware blocker, uh, generate and store strong passwords, protect files in an encrypted cloud. Grab your exclusive NordVPN deal by going to nordvpn.com slash co-main. Or use the code COMAIN to get one free bonus month and their exclusive money-back guarantee. Uh, we didn't get a ton of mail about Carla Sparza versus Zhang Wiley, and I, the reasons for that are probably self-explanatory, I would think. But we did get this message from our guy Chris E. over on the Discord, the official Co-Main Event Podcast Discord message board. I hope he is okay with me reading it here. Uh, he writes... I've been thinking a lot about Carla Esparza since listening to this and other MMA podcasts last week. Am I alone in thinking that she doesn't get the respect that she deserves from the wider MMA community? Okay, Wiley went out and did what we expected her to do, but that's not because Carla is as crap as people make out. It's because Wiley is that good. Now, this is probably a fair point. She, she uh, quite literally is championship level. At this point, like a couple of different times, Carla Sparza. So you got to give her credit for that. And frankly, she did. She she ultimately kind of got physically worked by a bigger, stronger, faster athlete in Wiley Zhang. And the size difference was one of the things that struck me here. The just Zhang Wiley, whose na- nickname, by the way, is Magnum. Yeah. That mm-hmm. was, has it been that for a while? Because that's just yep. sinking in with me now that Zhang Wiley's nickname is Magnum. I don't think it's under any threat of actually taking over. Yeah. I don't now, think see, we're going to be walking around with any like Magnum shirts on. Only if, soon. There's only a few different connotations for the word Magnum. Yeah. The one that I would want to lean into if I were <laughs> Zhang Wiley would be, hey, Venom, can you make me a Hawaiian shirt? And okay. Hawaiian print 
t- trunks, tights to wear, and I can do like a Magnum PI kind of thing. Maybe walk out to the Magnum PI theme song, which is pretty dope, uh, and, and go with that. I, the other connotations I would probably want to avoid if I were her, but that's just me. And I just noticed for the first time that her nickname is Magnum. That was a digression. What I was going to say is that, you know, Carlos Barza hung in there for at least a round a little bit better than I thought she would. Like on some of these, some of these ground exchanges, she actually managed to get the position that she wanted and stay there for a little while before Zhang Wiley was just sort of like, okay, well, I'm just much bigger than you, so I'm just going to do this. And then she would do it. But, you know, Carlos Barza, we all, we all kind of knew what the game was heading into this fight. And I, was, I thought that, you know, she did just marginally better than I expected her to. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're really grading on a curve there, though. Because you're the, the champion who won the belt in probably the worst UFC title fight ever. And you come off that and your first defense... You get submitted in the second round in a fight that you can only very charitably have been said to be competitive in for a few moments here or there. You come out of that, you do have to reach a little bit to find some silver linings. But it's true that I think MMA fans, we all sort of got it in our heads that either Carla sucks or we don't like Carla or whatever. Part of it, I think, is that she has like almost an allergy to any form of charisma. She she does she's not very good at getting people behind her on her side. I mean, she's there, Chad, in New York, to defend this title against a Chinese fighter. She makes a comment about bringing keeping the belt there in the U.S. and she gets booed, <laughs> like by MMA fans, by people who love to chant USA, sometimes even when both fighters are American. They love to do that shit. She can't even rally them behind her in that sense. Yeah. That tells you something about a a failure to connect with the audience. Yeah, that would stump a career professional wrestler who (laughs) might have given Carla that advice to be like, hey, you want them to cheer you. Just go out there and say you're going to keep the belt right here in the good old U.S. of A. And then when the booze start raining down, they just would have been like, yeah, I don't know. I got nothing. That always works. Yeah. hundred percent of the time that works. Yeah. That's just like supposed to be like pressing a button. You at least get some cheers out of that one. Nope. Not here. Uh, and I, I also think that maybe it's people reacting to this feeling like, okay, you're the champion, but you're not really the champion. We don't really sit here and buy you as the best fighter in this division in the world right now. And so they, unless you prove them wrong, unless you go out there and show that you really are that person, there's this sense that you're a fraud somehow and they're not going to respond very well to that. So like, I think that that, that was a lot of it and it's like, okay, fine that she did. She Clearly, to get to this point, to even get in some of these title fights, you know Carlos Barza has to be good. She had to win some fights. Because it's not like there was anything else about her. The UFC was going, okay, yes, we want to put this person in some big opportunities. No! They didn't want that at all. We know what kind of female fighters the UFC gravitates toward and wants to put in big opportunities, whether they've earned it or not. And Carlos Barza does not check any of those boxes. She won six fights in a row. Caps, of course, by that terrible fight against Rose, but still the worst six fight fights, ever. Six fights in a fight row, ever. six fights in a row. Yeah. So like she, she got into that position by pure merit. 
Um, but it's just that it still wasn't quite enough. Yeah. I, I don't want to be mean to Carla, but it was, I sort of got the impression that even she thought that in some ways, like, uh, you go back to your corner after round one and with the things that they said to her were, were, so she's not as fast as you thought she was is one of the things that they said. And I was like, really? Huh. Okay. You must uh, have thought she was really fast. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing that they said was like, she can't hang with you on the ground. I was just sort of like, huh. Those and then you're going to go out there and get submitted in the very next round. Those seem like odd things to say. And the tap came quickly as well. McGregor-esque was the tap by the time Zhang Weili uh, finally locked it on. Yeah. All right. We got this one from our guy at Pissed Off Lawyer over there on Twitter. He, he wrote, I am writing this. This is in all caps, I should Naturally. say. Naturally. Just yeah. to set the tone. I am writing this seconds after Poirier versus Chandler. Poirier is the violence goat discourse. So just like we like it, short and sweet. From Got our the guy. caps lock stuck on there, huh? Pissed off lawyer. Uh, really, though, can't say enough terrific things about Dustin Poirier and Michael Chandler. Poirier, of course, the winner by third round rear naked choke in their lightweight contender fight. Uh, this one was everything we thought it was going to be back and forth. Michael Chandler with the explosive offense. Dustin Poirier, uh, I guess he would say with the ring generalship and perhaps the more technical acumen. And on top of that, it's just a tough son of a bitch. Yeah. Dude. Like I feel like scrappy dog. This fight was a good reminder also uh, that while Dustin Poirier is one of the more beloved figures in mixed martial arts and known as a gentleman uh, in this very weird world of ours, that dude is also uh, kind of street and he will get mad. Because he got fucking mad in this fight. And you could kind of see it throughout. I think we probably got a question, several questions, in fact, about uh, this one came from Rob, who wrote, This weekend, Michael Chandler was fish hooking, hitting the back of the head and blowing bloody snot into Dustin's face. Should a Dundasso black belt have been awarded in the cage post fight? <laughs> do you have to win to get the Dundasso black belt? If you do all that Dundasso and lose anyway. Well, I mean, he didn't get caught. He didn't get caught for it by the referee. Like, uh, even though he did get caught for hitting in the back of the head. That's I mean, true. There's a point. We didn't Somebody suffer any consequences. For it, <laughs> no, no, did not. So that that is a point in his favor from the Dadaso scale. There's a point where he is just hammering away clearly at the back of Dustin Poirier's head, and the referee comes over and tries to grab. He's like clearly trying to tell him about it, but he's just doing it anyway. Just donkey Konging right on the back of dusty P's head. And the ref was a big Dan uh, reaches down to try to grab his arm to stop him from doing that. And he wrenches his arm free, like an angry toddler and just goes right back to it. And he's just like, damn man, that is some, and see, that's the thing. He came out afterwards and was like, no, you know, I accidentally got my fingers in his mouth. I, I don't think I hit him in the back of the head. I wasn't trying to blow blood on him. It was just I was trying to breathe. And he was down there, and that's how gravity works. And it's like, if it had been any, just one single one of those, I might be inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt. But three different things like that all happen in the same fight? Yeah. Brother, if it looks like a duck... <laughs> quacks like a duck blows snot bubbles and uh, bloody snot bubbles like a duck it's kind of hard to talk your way out especially you're getting your you, you got his hand all up in dustin poirier's mouth you know yeah. 
That and that was a bad one too because we because yeah, he lifted it, it up. He, yeah. he, when he got his hand in there, he was saying, "I was trying to pull it out." And he bit down on him or something. But it's like you lifted it up while you were trying to sink the forearm around the neck. Like you were using it. You didn't just get your hand in there accidentally. You were using that to try to move his head where you wanted it. Yeah. Uh, this is the technical term that we use for these fouls is fish hooking, but this was more like a weird mandible claw or something yeah. like fingers in the mouth trying to wrench up on the upper palate area to try to get Dustin Poirier to put his chin up so he could sink the rear naked choke under that. Like that's, that's a bad foul, man. Yeah. And like Dustin Poirier specifically is a guy who has built up enough political capital in this sport that if cool dusty P is going to go out there and call you a cheating ass bastard and clearly be fucking pissed. Like he was mad. There was a, I wish I had a screenshot of him even before the fight was over. There is one time when, uh, during the second round, uh, Chandler has him pinned against the fence in that position where he'd been hitting him in the back of the head. And Poirier is just glaring at Dan Mergliata. Like, what the fuck are you even doing? And I wish I had it screenshotted because he was mad. And then after the fight, He's he's talking all that trash, stomping around the cage, saying shit, and like they they hugged and stuff, and, but it didn't seem like he had completely uh, gotten over it. So like, if if Poirier is gonna be that mad, I'll just tell you, I believe him. Like, I don't think he's doing that for no reason. I think he's, uh, I think Mike Chandler might have tried to do some stuff during their fight. Yeah, I also like somebody posted a, a clip of this on Twitter where you know you're in trouble. When Dustin Poirier uh, starts adjusting his shorts and doing the sort of old man shuffle toward you, like he's, <laughs> he's in his stance and he is pursuing you that way uh, and like hiking up his shorts at the same time, that means he is coming to do some business yeah. and you better watch out. You have fucked up. And yeah. that's, you know, you made this point earlier about him. I think this is kind of worth saying because it's remarkable that Dustin Poirier at this point, he's 33 He's been in this game since 2009. He's reached a certain sort of elder statesman level where we know and respect him as a gentleman of this sport, one of the more reasonable and uh, articulate guys in this sport who seems to have peered through the veneer of it a little bit. And the, the comment, I remember he made this comment to me at the last McGregor fight when at the post-fight press conference where he said something about like, I don't even get excited about this shit anymore. Like, I like the fighting and the training, but, like, all the other aspects of this game I recognize now as being, like, part of the business, the sales aspect of this business. And I don't allow myself to get too into that anymore because of, like, all his experience in this. And to to be at that stage of your career where you are a certified big fight guy, no matter who you're fighting, you you are a, a real somebody who brings a spotlight with you no matter where you go. But to also have that, okay, you want to put your fingers in my mouth, I'm going to fuck you up kind of mentality. Like That's a sort of rare combination to maintain where you seem like you were under control and you're not doing anything stupid and uh, you understand, you're a veteran who understands the way this sport works, but you also... Uh, can go in the back alley and get into a scrap with somebody using a trash can lid if you need to. Yeah. To have those that the duality of man sort of thing going on for Dustin Poirier, uh, you know that's that's a rare combination in this sport. Yeah, he's like that action movie 
character who for the first half of the movie is a mild-mannered businessman and then halfway through his family is murdered and it turns out he was also a special forces guy yeah that's basically Dustin Poirier yep uh well I did want to talk about this thing before we move on about Dustin Poirier right is you have a you have a new lightweight champion in Islam Mahachev who happens to be the protege of the old lightweight champion that kind of wore you around the cage like a hat when you got in there with him in Abu Dhabi. Dusty P's also got a loss to Charles Oliveira, who's the number, officially the number one ranked lightweight in the UFC for what that is worth. Dustin Poirier is number two. We think we're going to do a champion versus champion fight of Islam Mahachev against uh, Alexander Volkanovsky. Where do you feel like this leaves Dustin Poirier at 33 years old, which I feel like you said that a minute ago, like that was, he was, he was a mature man, which I agree with, but I'm kind of astonished that Dustin Poirier is only 33 years old. Yeah. It feels like he should be older. He started young. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. But where does he, where does he now after this, after this win? You know, I don't know, because it feels like the UFC doesn't necessarily want to rush back into another Dustin Poirier title fight. I think if he were to get in there with somebody like Islam Mahachev, it would go badly for him. But I think that there is a lot of business you can do with Dustin Poirier outside of title fights. Just, you know, I was kind of astounded to hear Michael Chandler showing up at the post-fight press conference and being like, I still think I'm the best possible fight for Conor McGregor. And you're like, really? Because... You're one of the lightweights with a name that is most beatable? Because that's how you seem now. Uh, Dustin Poirier, to me, seems like that guy where it's like, if you want to make a big fight happen at lightweight outside of the title, outside of that whole picture, yeah, you have to have Dusty P involved. And if yeah. you do, then the other person could be a whole lot of different people. The Like, really, the only problem you're running into is that he's been at the top near the top of this division for so long now that he's fought damn near everybody who matters. And so you're either getting into reruns or you're trying to find something fresh for him to do. Um, and you just lost Nate Diaz, it seems most likely from that possible equation. So I, I think that he is that kind of guy where it doesn't really have to be a fight about anything. We just know that Dustin Poirier brings fun scraps and he's a big name. And I think that the UFC can do some business with that if they want to. And if if Dustin Poirier is okay being that guy. Yeah. Uh, let's squeeze this one in from Dan Alexander before we move on. He said, Iron Mike Chandler, as exciting as his fighting style is, how far could this guy go if he ever engaged that part of his brain which controls self-preservation? Now, we talked about Michael Chandler. We have talked about Michael Chandler a lot on this show. At 36 years old, and coming over from Bellator after a long career there, made his UFC debut in early 2021. And it has seemed like since then, Michael Chandler has been of the mindset to say, I was late in coming to the party, and now I'm going to ring absolutely every bit of like promotional uh, wherewithal that I have out of this UFC career and just ride it till the wheels fall off, essentially. like Everything he has done, everything he has said, every fight that he has had, has seemed calculated not necessarily for self-preservation, as Dan Alexander notes, and not even necessarily to give him the win, but to seem to make him marketable, essentially. He's like, he's pulled out every stop that he had in the toolbox. But now, like I said, 36 year old, 36 years old, one and three in his last four fights, his only win in that stretch is when he kicked Tony Ferguson right in his mouth. Uh is this is this a valid point? Like, should is it time or is it past time maybe for Michael Chandler to uh, start fighting a little smarter, start using some uh, 
some smarts, some strategy, I guess. Is that what we really want? It's not what we want, but is it time for Michael Chandler to do that? <laughs> I, I think the mold is set for him. I don't think that uh, he might be able to tell himself if he wanted to, that that's what he's going to do. But don't, doesn't it also feel like Michael Chandler made a calculation at a certain point in his career, especially when he made the jump to the UFC at that kind of late stage in his career after he'd been with Bellator for so long and it had been the guy for Bellator for a long time. And then when he came over to the UFC, he didn't seem like he was coming over with a, let's protect this brand at all costs and right. try to manicure our way to a title fight or something. It seemed like he came over thinking like, I'm going to give you some flat out bangers. Yeah. And one way or another, uh, you know, those fights are going to be worth watching. And it seems like, that was kind of a conscious choice that he made. Maybe just thinking about where he was in his career, how much time he thought he had left in his career, and what he thought his own sales proposition was, both to the UFC and to the fans. Uh, and it's funny because on paper, if you look at the guy's pedigree uh, coming from the world of college wrestling, you would expect a much more conservative kind of style, right? You would expect a guy to be going out there thinking double leg and top control and grounded pound. And instead, the guy's just going out there and just letting it all hang out every time. And I don't think that he is really capable at this point of changing all that, of being like, okay, it's it's time to start protecting the old brain or time to start fighting safer. I don't, psychologically, I don't think he could do it even if he wanted to. You're telling me Michael Chandler only has one speed, and on the riding lawnmower, it's when you push it all the way up to rabbit. I'm telling you, he could train how he wants and prepare a game plan however he wants, but when he hears the music, Michael Chandler going to dance. Yeah. That's what I'm I telling think, you. I think you might be right about that. All right, Ben, from a fun fight to a perhaps a not so fun fight, I am going to read these two together. We got this message from Lyle Landley with the subject line, Frankie Edgar. And the message just said, well, that was sad. Mm -hmm. Then we got this one from our guy, Josh Montgomery over on Patreon. He writes, fellas, by the time you're reading this, I'm hoping the NYAG is officially pressing attempted murder charges against its own state athletic commission, Dana White, Ari Emanuel, Mark Henry, Frankie Edgar's wife, and anyone else involved in allowing Frankie Edgar to fight Chris Gutierrez. Seriously, who thought that was a good idea? I mean, you couldn't have found some 36-year-old, 14-11 ham and egger in the area to get Frankie a W on the way out? That was some bullshit discourse now this is one that only went two minutes and one second but you could kind of see how it was going to go for every second of those two minutes man this was it was like a waiting for a bomb to go off and then it did yeah and it's just at this point we've seen enough of frankie edgar knocked all the way out that every time you have to see it again it just gets scarier and more concerning because those don't come for free, man. Yeah. There is a price to be paid for those. And that, that does really bum me out. And especially because it didn't have to be this way. We could have done something else. Could have made a different decision here because if you know that it's the last one for Frank Yeager, I understand maybe the promoter thinking is that, Hey, one guy's leaving. We need to think about the future. Let's see if we can get some of the shine from the guy, the old guy who's on his way out for one of these new guys on the way up. But at this point, 
you've already done that enough to Frankie Edgar that there's not that much shine left to transfer over to Chris Gutierrez here. Like, I don't think Chris Gutierrez shows up for his next fight. People are going to be like, this guy's the real deal. He knocked out Frankie Edgar. Well, so did several other people before that. So I don't think that anybody is really raising their esteem by doing that on the way out the door. And you had other options, like somebody like Dominic Cruz, where they're, they're peers, basically, in age. It's a fun matchup that would have seemed like the kind that would blow our minds if you told us back when Dominic Cruz was WEC champ and Frankie Edgar was lightweight champ, that the two of those guys would meet one day in Frankie's final fight in the UFC. Like It, it has a good sort of narrative. Or even if you wanted to get crazy and do something like, hey, Jim Miller, remember when you guys fought on like an Atlantic City or something back on like a, a regional New Jersey event before either one of you were in the UFC? How about you guys agree to a catch weight or something we do? You know, like just do something else where you make it clear this one is not about the normal future stakes or rankings or anything. This one is sort of legacy two guys who we know who are both at a certain stage of their career in the latter days of it and wouldn't it be fun to see them fight and they both have a lot of respect for each other and then you know if somebody gets knocked out we at least don't feel like it was a setup all along because that's how this shit feels man how is it that frankie edgar still looks tiny at bantamweight it's like every weight class he goes to Suddenly, the people he is fighting are giants. Chris Gutierrez is just looking huge out there compared to Frankie Edgar. I feel like Frankie Edgar could cut down to atom weight, and whoever he was fighting would just tower over him. Chris Gutierrez is out there with his picture-perfect footwork and his feints, and then he throws that knee and just knocks him out cold. It was just, it was depressing to watch it happen. Eight wins, eight fights without a loss now for Chris Gutierrez, by the way. Yeah, could we at least find Frank Yeager somebody to fight who's like 5'3"? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, t- I don't know if, the, like, I'm just psychologically superimposing this on guys, but, like, uh, I feel like when you get towards the end of your career, the fighters start to get look old in the face. Like, yeah. they start to get, like, old man fighter face. Mm-hmm. And they, like, they start to look fragile while they're out there in the cage. For some reason, just like a moving around. Frankie Edgar's still doing his Frankie Edgar bobbing and weaving, moving around stuff. But while I'm sitting at home watching him, I was just like terrified the whole time because just looking at him, I was like, he just doesn't he doesn't look like he should be doing this right now. Yeah, no, his his face does look like a, a completely different person at this point. We got this uh, message from our guy, uh, Daniel Alfredson, on Patreon. He wrote, did you guys watch the Frankie Edgar fight on the weekend? And then in parentheses, of May 13th, 2017. (laughs) An old feller vanquishing a young buck like Yair Rodriguez. Very impressive. (laughs) What a great place to call it quits for a legend like Frankie. I'd hate to see what would happen if they continue matching him up with these young killers. Sincerely, an ostrich with their head firmly buried in the sand. Oh, man, I love to get a, a question from the time machine. Yeah. Because, yeah, all right, went back and looked at it. That was a UFC 211, right, in Dallas, Texas. Uh, Frankie Edgar was coming off his decision win over Jeremy Stevens. Uh, prior to that, he had lost the interim featherweight bout against Jose Aldo at UFC 200. Um, But, yeah, you know, I mean, knowing what we know now, sure, 
Maybe uh, that would be a great place to be like, okay, they tried, they tried to match up with one of these young guys. No, nothing doing. The old dog, Frank Yeager, going to find a way to get it done. Uh, second round TKO stoppage. And uh, then after that, you know what they did with him, Chad? Had him fight Brian Ortega. Yeah. Just two wins and six losses for Frankie Edgar after that victory over Yair Rodriguez. If you could quantum leap into someone else's body back to 2017 and get Frankie Edgar to to hang him up after that one, and you know, might have been a good thing. Who knows? That that fight with Brian Ortega that he did after the Yair Rodriguez one, that was the first knockout loss of his career. Uh, and then, of course, he would go on to suffer... Uh, another one the following year against Chan Sun Yung, and then three in a row here to end the career, and they all just got worse and worse to watch. Yeah, knocked stiff here against Chris Gutierrez, which was not what you wanted to see. All right, we got this question from David Lauderay, who writes, You got a feel for Dominic Reyes. Dude nearly beats John Jones, arguably may have deserved the nod, but has since lost four in a row. His past four opponents, John Jones, light heavyweight goat, Jan Blahovich, former light heavyweight champion, Yuri Prohaska, current light heavyweight champion, and Ryan Spann. And then he says, future light heavyweight champ? Come on. Obviously, his competition has been as high as you can get, but do you think his losses are more to do with A, competition, B, leaving too much of himself in there against Jones, or C, mental? Finally, we're to my actual question. If Reyes had beaten Jones, do you think he would have lost these next three? Or would the momentum of beating Jones have been likely to carry him past the next three guys? Speculate, please. And then we got one also from uh, Shoulders, Chest, Pants, Shoes. Nice. Who writes, did Dom Reyes... fucking inscrutable. I love it. Did, did, did Dom Reyes fly too close to the sun the night he almost beat John Jones? Simply put, he's just been a harbinger for punishment ever since, despite switching camps and fighting lesser competition. I hope we agree he's not quite cuttable yet, but when he wakes up from his nap, how about we give him Johnny Walker? Uh, this is another one that was a little bit hard to watch. Uh, Dominic Reyes went out there, got knocked out by Ryan Spann in a minute and 20 seconds. Uh, and yeah, this is a very odd career trajectory. For Dominic Reyes, who did look within a hair's breadth of greatness against John Jones when those guys fought back at UFC 247. But including that one, as David Lottery points out, he's lost them all, man. He's lost every one of them. And previous to that, he was 12-0, and undefeated yeah. before that John Jones fight. You know who it kind of reminds me of, and I hate to make this comparison a little bit, is Johnny Hendricks. Yeah, I knew you were going to say Big Rig. Because it was just one of those where it's like a guy seems like he's going up, up, up. Uh, seems like arguably could have won this title fight, but didn't. And then it just sort of spirals down in flames quickly after that. And if we are going to engage in some just irresponsible speculation that we don't have much to put behind it, I think that it has to be at least a little bit mental for him. Because he did have that sort of swaggering feel going into that John Jones fight of like, Hey, I've never been beaten. And for all I know, cannot be beaten and did really well in that Jones fight and came out of it. And when they booked him for the vacant title fight against Yanni blackjacks, you recall, we were saying, and a whole lot of people were saying that this is basically just a formality 
that Dominic Reyes at coming out of that John Jones fight. A lot of people thought he deserved to win it. If John Jones is going to leave the division, then we should basically just give the belt to Dom Reyes. Um, but okay, we want to have this as a coronation essentially for him to go out there and beat Jan Blahovich, who people were looking at as kind of old and slow even then. And then he goes out there and he gets knocked out and everybody goes, holy shit, Polish power, real thing apparently. And, I think that after that, it kind of did get in his head. And uh, this one especially, he went out there and obviously it's one thing to feel like you got all the pieces in place before somebody punches you in the head and then things can get weird. And he seemed like he got clipped really early in this one and maybe was not totally there with it. But on the sequence, sequence where he gets knocked out, you see him throw like this sort of pawing feint with his lead hand. Uh, which Ryan Spann responds to by just jabbing a hole in his fucking head. Just immediately. Like, a, like he just sees that hand come out there. And it's like Dominic Reyes wants to sort of use it as cover to set up the, the follow-up straight left. But it's just sort of like a a hopeful combination. Like, it's not really based on anything that is actually going to work. It's just sort of like, I would really like to land the big left hand and get back in this fight. So let me just throw something out there and it ends up getting him knocked out. And it's like, man, you're going to watch that one back on tape and you're going to wonder what you were doing, like how you thought that was going to work. And I think that part of stuff is that physically, clearly the guy, big guy, good athlete has a lot of the pieces in place, but I think it could happen to anybody where you suffer a couple knockout losses and you start to question yourself. And the next thing you know, you're going in there trying not to lose yeah. and trying to or trying to talk yourself into thinking that you're going to stop this skid and turn it around and yet not totally believing it. And I think that it, it did kind of get in his head that way. I mean, if it wasn't in his head before, it probably is now. It's got to be. Four straight losses and came into this one as a pretty significant favorite to go from undefeated to four straight losses. That's That's going to hang with you for a while. Yeah. All right. We got this one from our guy, Freddie Fruit Loop, who writes, what do we think about the sneaky consequences of the Meatball Molly versus Blanchfield fight? Call me crazy, but the UFC, who I thought liked money, could have rode the Meatball Patty wave. Patty fights in December, could have gave Molly a can and then both one more time in the UK before giving her a real test like in all caps, 23 year old Aaron Blanchfield. That was some Space Jam monster-level performance in terms of potential stardom and dominance. What do we think about EB's potential at 125? So let's talk first about what we're doing with Molly McCann here, uh, and then we can talk about the impressive potential, I think, of Aaron Blanchfield. But I think that this question is, is a good one because yeah. this is Aaron Blanchfield's hometown, essentially, right? Aaron Blanchfield is from... Elmwood Park, New Jersey, and she's fighting at Madison Square Garden, and she got booed against, again, an international product in Molly McCann, and during the uh, the first couple minutes of this fight, as long as it lasted, the crowd is chanting, let's go meatball, right? Yeah. So that's that tells you something about the popularity of these young British kids that we who we have called mascots a couple of times for the UFC, both Patty Pimblett and Molly McCann. She was also, in Aaron Blanchfield, a three or four to one favorite heading into this fight. This was not a surprise 
that this is what happened here. And I guess it would be weird for us to criticize the UFC for doing this, since one of the things uh, that we have criticized them for in the past is kind of playing favorites and getting people, you know, matchups based on the kind of money that they want to make for them. Uh, but it seems to me like they threw Molly McCann to the wolves here, and I don't really understand why. Okay. Do you want to hear my working theory for this? Uh, I would love to hear your conspiracy. What is it? It's not so much a conspiracy, but it is, again, highly speculative. I think the UFC, as much as they like having Molly McCann around as a character, she and and Patty as the, the mascots, all that kind of stuff, I think they also are savvy enough assessors of talent and ability that they looked at her and they thought, this one has some holes. This one is going to get beat here uh, sooner rather than later, probably, once we start putting her up against tougher competition. So, do we want to fuck around and have that surprise us? Mm. Where we put her up against one of these fights where we're doing a thing because we want her to win and want everybody to get pumped up and shout, let's go meatball, and then go on a Barstool Sports uh, two-week podcast tour or something? Or... Do we want to do it when we know it's coming and we can sort of steer the skid a little bit so that it benefits us another way? And Aaron Blanchfield is a good example of that. Like, because as you said, she comes in here where it's basically a home game for her, but it seems like no one in the crowd knows or cares. Yeah. Because they don't really know who Aaron Blanchfield is. So they don't know that that she's from there. They a lot of those people, I'm sure, in the crowd, people are paying fucking $800 for their tickets and whatnot. They found out that she was a neighbor of theirs when they heard it announced and still didn't much care because Molly McCann is the one that they had heard of. And what do you do if you think that, you know, Molly McCann getting a beat here, but if we make sure that it's to somebody who we think actually is good and is going places, then she will get some of that shine because the shine hasn't worn off Molly McCann for a lot of these people yet. So, Let's give it to somebody who's actually going to run with it and do something with it. And especially if we get it to somebody who stylistically has it in her to absolutely dominate Molly McCann and look really good doing it, that then people will come out of it going like, oh shit, I guess Aaron Blanchfield is the real deal. And hey, Molly McCann was going to suffer one of these losses eventually anyway. So she, she can still hang around and be the fun person that people will get excited about. She can still win some of them. Uh, she still has a lot of likability personality uh, that she's still going to be able to do a lot of the, the meatball Molly stuff, the meatball yeah. Molly gimmick to the extent that it is. I mean, I'm sure it's not really a gimmick. It is. It does seem to be really her, but it's not dependent on winning them all. That's, That's not really the thing that she brings. And so yeah. somebody else like Aaron Blanchfield can really benefit from a lot of people on a big card, finding out who the fuck she is and that she is good in a fight like this. You're telling me that the UFC noticed that the fuse was already lit and burning on Molly McCann and they were like, let's throw this stick of dynamite before it goes off in our hand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that's a that's a reasonable calculation to make. Yeah. And also, I mean, man, when this fight, as soon as this fight hit the ground, where you like, you know, when you're watching this one that you're that Aaron Blanfield is just waiting for her opportunity to change levels and start to the downhill slide of getting this thing over with. And as soon as this one hits the mat and she moves right to side control and Molly McCann is laying there flat on her back, like it's doing all the things you don't want to do when you get, as soon as you get taken down flat on the back side control, uh, doesn't have a, a frame on the near side and 
is got given up the underhook on the far side and is just sort of like holding on to the back of Aaron Blanchfield's head, which Aaron Blanchfield feels that and goes, okay, this couldn't be going any fucking better for me. <laughs> like she's leaving her, her one arm close where I can trap it. The other arm, she's basically already given it to me and is like, here, what, what would you like to do with it? I'm not using it. And like it, it, she knows at that point you got it. And it's just a matter of figuring out how you're going to get it done. And so like, I think that the UFC looked at this potential matchup and knew what they were getting out of it. And it, it was a, a calculation to be like, people need to know that Aaron Blanchfield is good. How do you tell them? They're excited about the meatball. Have her beat the shit out of the meatball. And then they'll be like, oh, damn, Aaron Blanchfield's for real. And honestly, I think it worked. Yeah. I think it actually worked. I think there's a whole lot of people who know Aaron Blanchfield now who didn't know her on Friday. Yeah, I agree with you. I think you're right. That probably was the calculation. And the other thing that I think you're right about is that I'm not sure the Freddy Fruit Loop plan here is completely off the table. Like, yeah, Molly McCann lost to Aaron Blanchfield. But if you did give her a can and threw her on a UK card and Patty Pimblett was already there, approximately 0% of people would care. And I think, you know, you're right back to where you were before, uh, if that's your plan. Uh, let's talk just for a couple seconds about cold-blooded Aaron Blanchfield, who is 23 years old. As I said, her only career loss is a split decision to Tracy Cortez back in Invicta in 2019. Since then, she has run off a bunch of wins in a row, including four in the UFC. Most recently, obviously, Molly McCann, but before that, J.J. Aldrich and Miranda Maverick. So kind of an impressive string of victories here. Uh, I'm not going to get ahead of myself being like, let's throw her in a title fight because not even she is calling for that. She's calling for the number nine spot. That's yeah. where she's at. But at the same time, if we're in this, in this weight class where we're scrounging around for someone to be a test for Valentina Shevchenko, for somebody to even put up a fight, it would be someone with the skill set of an Aaron Blanchfield. I would think yeah. someone who wants to do that in their fight. I think so. I think that if I were managing the career of Aaron Blanchfield, though, the thing I'd want to do is let Aaron Blanchfield get a little more experience and also let Valentina get a little older. Yeah. Yeah. Let those two things happen. And then maybe the, the worst thing you could do is try for that too soon and end up fucking it all up. Next question this week comes to us from our guy, Isaac Spooner on Patreon. He wrote subject line, non Izzy city kickboxing roundup. He wrote fellas, Carlos Ulberg got a fun KO and seems to be piecing his game together. He's definitely on team handsome. Brad Riddell suddenly on a three fight skid. Yikes. Lightweight going lightweight. Dan Hooker is still Dan Hooker. Gatekeeper status? Question mark. Stay frosty. Now this is, uh, Maybe an interesting topic because we see this, this happens frequently, right? With these camps kind of explode on the scene. We could probably toss out a handful of names of this is that this has happened to, you know, maybe they get a champion, maybe they get a couple champions. They're the hot camp for a few minutes. And then we kind of see them come back to earth. Now, last week on the power hour on Friday, over on the Patreon page, you and I had a short conversation about Eugene Behrman and how we feel like these city kickboxing guys generally have, Good game plans. They're well coached. They seem to be ready for what the obstacles are. Uh, Eugene Behrman seems to be a very, very good trainer and coach. But at the same time, is, is has city kickboxing kind of reached its apex? And now we're on the other side of the mountain headed down the hill. I don't know. I mean, I think if you have a whole bunch of guys in the UFC at various weight classes, you're going to go through some things. 
you're going to have some ups and downs. And it's kind of a question of how you deal with those to me. I, I don't think that you look at it and be like, okay, this proves that they're not supermen or anything, or they don't have a magic formula down there. Of course they don't. Nobody does. But they're still, they're doing pretty damn good. Especially when you consider that, like, I remember Greg Jackson used to say about other trainers and stuff that you want to look at not just like who they have, but who they have who has been with them for a long time. Like who they've really built up and worked with and not just like, you know, you fling your doors open to a guy who is already a star and he comes in there and then, you know, he wins a couple with you. But like, who who do you have that over years and over all the things that a fighter goes through manages to keep somebody good and keep somebody on a good path. And it's tough to do. It's tougher than I think a lot of people realize. And especially some of these fights, like the Brad Waddell one, you go in there against Hinato Moikaino, who just seemed like he was fired all the way the fuck up for this one, man. And that guy was going to be a tough, tough dude to beat on that particular night. Um, And the Israel Adesanya one in the title fight main event where it's like, you seem to have a pretty good game plan. He's doing well. And the other guy just turns it on when he needs to and and gets you out of there. But it's not like you look at him and be like, these guys are fucking up, you know, like the, or these guys were unprepared or anything. And it's also interesting how the UFC likes to do these things where it's like, well, hey, look, if we're going to pay for a bunch of plane tickets to get these guys from the other side of the world on, let's get them all at once. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's get them so we can get all the coaches, everybody over here all at once. Let's not do it one at a time. All right, we got a couple more that I want to get to, but I also wanted to make sure that we got this topic in. Obviously, the sudden passing of Anthony Rumble Johnson. We got numerous emails. Brandon Boyd on Patreon wrote one that said, I've got a listener mail question. Anthony Rumble Johnson passed away. How will we remember Rumble? And how would you characterize his career to someone who never had the chance to see him fight? We got a message from Tom Hughes on Patreon. We got a message from King Thornton. And then we got this one uh, from Punk Curmudgeon, longtime emailer of the podcast. So I wanted to read it as well. He said, Rumble Johnson passed away. And honestly, I'm disgusted by a lot of the posts I see. I'm not celebrating his death but at the same time i refuse to celebrate him celebrate him as a quote-unquote good guy he had many charges and convictions of domestic abuse and abusive actions towards even random women like the lady at the gym he intimidated he never accepted responsibility or showed that he had changed his first court case was in 2008 and the last in 2021 he never even tried to achieve quote-unquote redemption or make amends and i will not forget that just because he could provide a fun ko to watch now uh, I see on Anthony Johnson's Wikipedia page, it says that he died of non-Hodgkin lymphoma, which is yeah. a blood cancer. Uh, and obviously, like, man, it is startling and I will say sad. I think anytime someone that you are familiar with dies at 38 years old, which is too young for anybody to be uh, dying. It's younger than both of us, if that tells you anything. Uh, but I also agree with punk curmudgeon here that we can't just put a happy face on Anthony Johnson's life and career and ignore these other stories, which were as big a part of his legacy and his, uh, story in mixed martial arts as any of this other stuff like this stuff happened and it would be irresponsible and may probably incorrect of us to ignore it just because he has now passed away. Yeah. I I mean, I had a lot of those same conflicting thoughts, especially seeing people's sort of homages to Anthony Johnson on social media after this news broke yesterday. And, you know, there's there's a Latin phrase that I can't remember exactly the phrase, the how it goes, but the, the gist is 
uh, of the dead, you know, you want to say only good stuff, even if they're a human being like anybody. So there is stuff that is not good that you could say. And so I think that that's sort of the prevailing sentiment among a lot of people, especially in the immediate aftermath of this kind of thing. I also think because you do see a lot of people, especially people in MMA who knew Anthony Johnson on the media side or got to know him in fight gyms and stuff like that who had a really positive opinion and thought of him as a really good guy. And I think sometimes for us, especially for for men, uh, it's difficult for us to understand at times that like, hey, the guy you knew could absolutely be pre- presented to you at all times like a good guy and like a, a friendly guy, nice guy, uh, but also uh, could have been a terror to women in his life. And that just because you knew him as a nice guy and that he's a nice guy to you doesn't mean that he's a nice guy to everybody. And I think sometimes that's hard for us to understand. And then, you know, it's also similarly hard for us to understand where you're like, hey, I remember this guy. I associate him with a lot of awesome fights and positive memories that I have there. But it doesn't mean the other stuff goes away either. So uh, I appreciate what Punker Mudgeon is trying to say here there. But I also do think, like, for the people who were in his life personally and and knew him, you got to imagine that's a really tough blow. uh, Because that is, that's really young to to get so seriously ill. And obviously it was something that they were not trying to be all that public about uh, as he was dealing with it. I mean, he, I remember he posted that thing once saying that he was in a tough fight, uh, but he felt like he was going to beat it. And to die of that at 38, I mean, that's nothing anybody has in their plans, you know? Yeah. that That's tough. Yeah. Uh, we wanted to get this one in. Question from uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, who I believe is the student's how do you say pseudonym, pseudonymous, pseudonym is as pseudo. Nailing pseudonym. it, just crushing it right it's now. Pseudonym. I can see you're not going to jump in to help me either. <laughs> you know, it's too much fun to watch you. <laughs> it's a pseudonym, I believe, for the person who uh, invented cryptocurrency, which will become obvious for the reason for that in a moment. He writes, hello, guys. I see those crypto.com ads all over the octagon, but that crypto fighter bonus fan pull thing seems to have vanished. No bonuses for UFC 280 or UFC 281. Is there a reason not to assume that the UFC is getting their money and the fighters are getting effed in the A yet again? Uh, It is interesting that we are carrying on with the Crypto.com sponsorship when there has been some reports out of Crypto.com not doing that well in the actual financial world and uh, that the, the, as the emailer here points out, the, the, voted on fan bonuses that we led to believe were going to be a thing moving forward have indeed sort of vanished. Yeah. And I, I mean, maybe I've missed it, but I have not heard anybody from the UFC like Dana White or anybody comment on that or even be asked to comment by in any of their media availability. I mean, we're showing up to hear him talk about his slap fighting stuff, but it, I don't, I mean, and maybe somebody has asked and I haven't heard his answer there because it does seem like, Hey, that seemed like a thing that you were saying was a, a way for fans to directly sort of reward fighters who they appreciated and thought were doing a good job. And then it just sort of quietly went away really quickly. It was only around for like a few events. And yeah, you do still see the logo around, but I'm wondering, because there are those reports that like you said about like the crypto.com sort of not paying a lot of these people who they have deals with because the thing is falling apart. And I wondered... Does the UFC just look at it and be like, well, we already got these shirts made up, man. You know, we already got the crypto.com shirts. Like if we just do away with it, we have to go print a whole bunch of new shirts. We don't want to do that. Like, so let's just 
use the rest of these run of shirts and then, you know, we and probably the UFC already got like some of the initial money, if not all of it, that they uh, were owed from crypto.com. And so you keep their logo on the stuff and you take the other part away, yeah. uh, especially because I could see how the UFC might be doing the calculation of being like, while it seems like the bottom has fallen out of the crypto market and it's filled with controversy everywhere you look. And it seems like now a whole lot of celebrities who put their names on various crypto stuff are taking a whole bunch of shit for it is now the time where you want to be adding to the already numerous complaints about fighter play fighter pay that, Hey, we're rewarding them with these bonuses that might be worth nothing by the time they get them. Yeah. Like they probably don't want to wade into that if they can help it. Right. Well, it's almost as if crypto.com paid up front in real money for all of their <laughs> UFC sponsorship stuff. So the UFC will continue to put their name on the octagon pads inside the cage and they'll continue to do the crypto.com ad reads during the events uh, until that contract expires. But maybe the fighter bonuses were going to come from new crypto investments like the, that, that money was additional to the original sponsorship. And now maybe it's not worth anything so they're not doing them anymore you're saying you don't think that the ufc let crypto.com pay for that sponsorship and crypto and crypto bucks i'm saying the ufc probably got its money and then was like oh this fighter thing well it's not coming out of our end i can tell you that it's gonna come from somewhere else all right you know what that is basically gonna do it for this week's co-main event podcast we do have after hours coming up right now for our $20 patrons over on the Patreon page. And Ben, I'm glad you brought up Dana White's power slap fighting league that is not a league. Because in After Hours this week, we are going to answer this question from our guy, the gringo poppy, who also happens to be a $20 patron over on Patreon. He writes, first, there shouldn't be a slap league outside of Russia. Second, (laughs) Fight Circus doesn't even have a slap league. Now these sleazeballs have the nerve to produce a glossary and expect people to follow their edicts. They say, quotes, comprised of the best strikers and defenders in the world. Nope. Unless they mean the best slappers. There is zero defense, so there are no defenders, just targets. Weight classes? Are you fucking kidding me? That means people will miss weight to slap someone. Are slappers aware of best practices when cutting weight? They also have bizarrely branded accoutrement like power slap sticks and power slap girls. One of those is comical. The other, unfortunate phrasing. And they then they insist we call them fighters to fight the, despite them really being slappers, slappists, slappies, targets, and the defenseless. So that's what we are going to be talking about over in After Hours. And we got some shit to say about it. Yeah. Believe you me. Uh, thanks to the rest of you for listening. $20 patrons, stay tuned for After Hours. Of course, we'll be over on the Patreon page all week, Wednesday with the live chat, Thursday with Doing the Damn Thing, and Friday with the Co-Main Event Podcast, Patreon Power Hour, that happens every week like clockwork. So if you want more MMA talk from us, head on over, join the Patreon page, patreon.com slash co-main event. And we'll see you over there. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. So just so everybody knows, let's just give a little bit of context here. That the Dana White Slap League, the Power Slap, it's not a league. 
uh, Dana White's Power Slap, or whatever it's called, has put out, among other things, this past week, uh, amid an informational press conference that Dana White uh, put together, a glossary of terms, which seeks to, I suppose in their words, inform people, and in, in our words, tell people how they should and should not write and talk about Dana White's Power Slap, whatever it is one of the more ridiculous things that I have ever seen in my <laughs> entire sports writing career. And that is to say a lot, especially since I've spent so much time in mixed martial arts, because I have seen some fucking ridiculous shit. And this might be the most ridiculous shit I have ever seen. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Because for one thing, this thing 